Hello and welcome to an interview with, I'm joined today by Alison Speechley, the phenomenon football coach. I'll give you a big build up there. Uh, hello, Alison, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks, Rodney. Although, please call me Ali because I'm only ever Alison if I'm in trouble. So I get nervous if you call me Alison. That, that's... <laughs> <laughs> That, that, that is not mentioned anywhere and all of the things that I've researched I'm thinking to myself at no point does she say to call me Ali okay Ali how are you I'm good thank you how are you yeah not too bad I'm really glad that I'm able to speak to you um you know let's just get straight into it obviously you're involved in football obviously you have a passion for football what I want to find out from you is is where did it begin for you in terms of you, you, your passion your love and, and how did you really get involved at an early age? Yeah, so I mean really football's my first love. So I, I've loved football since I could walk basically. I, I started kicking a ball about as soon as I physically could um, and I loved it. I grew up um, in the sort of 80s, early 90s and so it was, it was a little bit of a struggle to to play at times. I used to play in primary school. I used to play every lunchtime with the boys. They had no problem with that. Um, wasn't allowed to play for the school team though. Um, no girls allowed. Uh, I think I, I drew a bit of a short straw there. Um, and then when I went to secondary school, I went to an all girls school and there wasn't really football provision. So I, I sort of steered more towards hockey. Um, I'd still play football kind of in my spare time, um, but not in any organised sense, more just sort of kicking about with friends. Um, and then I didn't play for a long time. I didn't play at university at all. Um, when I started working in my sort of mid-twenties, I started to go for kickabouts with men um, from work, after work, sort of in the park in the summers. And um, it was when I was doing that that I was approached by sir, two Canadian girls, actually, who, who sort of jogged over and said, oh, my, my friends just set up a team in Clapham, wondering if you wanted to come along and kind of try out. And so, yeah, it wasn't until I think I'd just, I think I'd turned 30 or was turning 30 before I actually ever played organised 11-a-side football. Um, so... Definitely wish I'd have done it like at least a decade sooner. Um, but yeah, that was that was when I started playing and, and I played about three seasons of, of kind of Sunday League on Clapham Common, as, as a lot of, of people will be familiar with. And um, yeah, that was that was how I was playing football, really. Do you know something? There are two things that kind of stood out from what you just mentioned. When you said football is my first love, right? Generally boys say that you know i'm not trying to say that girls don't but boys usually say our oh, football's my first love you know very rarely have i heard any female say it's my first love you know they like the game but in terms of first i actually say love um that that's how strong an emotion it is that you have and yeah. is it i mean obviously you say it's your first love nothing has got in the way of that right at all no, not really. Only ever the only things that have sort of ever really got in the way of me and football is probably my own confidence, my own self doubt. Um, and then once I learn how to overcome that, it's just. I've, but I've always loved it. I've always had a passion for it. So even when growing up, so I've got a twin brother, but I've also got three older sisters. Um, and. Um, and growing up, I was the only one really in my family that, that really had a, a real passion for football. Everyone liked it, but I would I would be watching um, that Italian football program on on Channel Four just by myself in in a, on a little black and white TV in my mum's bedroom because no one because the main TV was taken over with with much more interesting things apparently. But to me, I just had to watch this this game and. When I was little, I literally just used to watch the ball, which obviously is what the TV cameras predominantly show. Um, but I was obsessed with this ball, just watching, even just as young as, you know, six, seven, eight, just watching the, the movement of this ball across the pitch. And then obviously as I got older, I started to think beyond the football. And, and I guess, especially with my coaching now, obviously I, I always think beyond the football. But yeah, always been obsessed with this, this round ball. This round ball. 
you, you know, you, you, you talk about your primary school years, obviously you were able to join in with the boys and probably a lot of school primary schools had that kind of setup where the boys were playing and there were girls that were involved. You know, you go to an all girls school, predominantly focused, I would say, some girls schools are focused in terms of certain arts, but you said you played hockey. How, how difficult was it for you to just engage in that sport, but still have, have your love, your first love in the background that no one else seemed to be interested in? So I think I've always loved sport and um, like I love the Olympics. I love watching the Olympics because you watch anything and everything, don't you, when the Olympics is on. And um, so even at, even at secondary school, when I, I wasn't playing football every lunchtime like I was used to at primary school, I did miss it. But I loved engaging all the new sports to me. So I'd never played hockey before. I'd never played netball. You know, I'd never played tennis. So I, I just enjoyed engaging in all the new sports and, you know, especially now as an adult and as the coach, I completely appreciate that there's lots of transferable skills between sports and there's lots of sort of fundamental skills that you pick up. Um, so I don't think at the time I was, I was conscious that, that it was a loss not to be playing football all the time because I, I was engaged in these new sports. And like I said, I would still go, I'd still go and meet up with those boys from primary school on the weekend and, and kick the ball about, um, you know, in the street or in the park with them. So I still had it in my life, just not in any sort of organised sense. Yeah, you know, that, that sounds really nice that you still were able to do that in your teenage years. Yeah, so I think I think um, I think when I got into sort of maybe teenagers, so that's that's where I'm talking about eleven, twelve. You know, when you first start secondary school. I think in my teenagers, um, I probably then did start to focus on on kind of hockey a bit more. Maybe again, still never played it outside of school. I was encouraged to play it outside of school by my games teacher, but I didn't, I didn't have the confidence. I didn't have the means like the transport means to get there. I didn't. So I never really, I think that's one of my, one of my passions now is about um, trying to help uh, provide opportunities for um, especially girls, but women as well to play sport that they might not otherwise have those opportunities because I think sometimes with certain sports, even football, that is this massive global sport that, that is celebrated the world over, sometimes some pathways do become a bit elite and then certain demographics can't access that sport. Um, so I think, yeah, it's really important to me to make sure everyone's got the opportunity to play some type of organised football. You, you, you say that some of the pathways are elite, which then are kind of make it more difficult for, for individuals to access it. What do, you, what do you actually mean by that in terms of those elite pathways? So I think sometimes when, you know, um, with academy programmes, um, obviously those programmes are very specifically designed to find and, and nurture professional talent and I think it's brilliant that we now have that in the women's game because it, you know fully paid female players is, is a relatively relevant um, thing it's not like that's been around for years and years and years um, and I think those pathways are obviously designed for that purpose and I think it's brilliant that we have them um, but I think they don't always re reflect the kind of uh, people that maybe live in those areas so I think sometimes it's hard to, what I'm talking about is access to programs so if you come from a low-income family for example so the reason I didn't pursue hockey outside of school um, is because I came from a single parent low-income family um, and I, I we didn't like my mum didn't drive we didn't have a car we didn't have any transport I'm one of five children how does she get me to some hockey? And then what's she doing with the rest of us? And why, where's the justification to pay for me to do hockey and then not pay for you know, my siblings to do something else? So I guess what I'm talking about is making sure that there is, there is loads of talent out there. There are loads of talented young girls playing football, but I'm not sure all of them have access to the talent levels that maybe they should be at. You know, you make a really good point. I mean, there was a recent discussion, debate or article around access to hockey 
with, with regards to kind of you know ethnic minorities and, and the, the, the hockey clubs not doing enough to to kind of go into what they call inner city but you know or hard to reach what i just say ignored um, areas um, so you know it, for you to explain what you in terms of the elite pathway it makes it makes total sense to me but i just wanted to to explain it so that it, people could hear it from your point of view you know with regards to obviously the hockey and where you are now with your coaching do you see the same thing with regards to football and access to certain clubs for girls do you see the same thing happening now yeah so i, I do think um i think the thing is with, with women's you know female football so women and girls football is that it has been delayed you know a 50-year ban on anything is going to delay the progress of something and so whilst I'm, I'm always very careful with my criticism of the women and girls game because i know we've come from um a starting point that is not equal or fair to the men's and the boys and so I'm not here to bash any programs or pathways because I think each and every single one of them is really important and they should all be celebrated. I think my point is more around um, making sure that if there are really talented, and this is probably in fairness true on the boys side as well, although I don't know as much about it, is if there is a really talented 12 year old girl who, who is brilliant at football, but just so happens to come from a deprived area, you know, what, what are we doing to ensure that we can support her in accessing? She could play for England. She could be good enough to play for England, but if she never gets those opportunities because mm. of her background, then we're not gonna see that reflected in the English national team. Um, so that's what my point is more around, like how do, and I don't, I'm not saying I've got all the answers, but I do think it is, I think whilst we are starting to celebrate the progress that the women and girls game has made, and we should absolutely do that, we should still be conscious that, you know, there is work still to do. Yeah, you know, you, you, um, well, you, you have an answer, it may not be all of the answers, but you're, you're putting forward an answer. Um, I want to come back to that a little bit later on when I talk to you more about how you, you are getting on with your coaching. I want to find out from you what it was like when you were actually playing because you say you started late so you've literally missed all of your 20s when a lot of people are playing for you. and yeah. you start you start and I don't, I don't mean to be rude you say you start in your 30s and I'm like thinking that's so late people are some people I, I was thinking of winding down and thinking oh, I've done enough now but you're, you're right? just beginning <laughs> how does that feel so um I, again, the love, the love comes first. So because I love the game so much, that's your motivation in anything in life, isn't it? Fine. I always say to people, because people, often people say to me, oh, it's so amazing that like you've, you've found your passion. I didn't find my passion. My passion was always here. My passion has always been inside of me. I allowed it to come to the forefront. I, I built my life in a way that meant I could put football first. And um, so even though I was thinking, hang on a minute, these guys, like I was playing with, with players that were, some were as young as, you know, 18, 19, some were, uh, most of them were in their 20s. Um, but I also actually played with a woman in that team who was in her early 40s. And that was really powerful. That was so inspirational to me because I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> if Rachel's doing that, then I haven't got any excuses. Um, and I think that links into the whole kind of, if she can see it, she can be it. Because that tagline is, I mean, it is more than just a hashtag. It is very powerful. And I believe in that sentiment entirely, but it often gets used in relation to girls. And I think it is just as true for women, you know, adult women. If she can see it, she can be it. Because again, because of the way football was treated and viewed in this country for a very long time. There is a whole generation of women who would have loved to have played doing what all the girls are doing now and have played football, but they missed out on it because they didn't, they weren't given those opportunities. So I love all these like over 35s, over 40s, over 50s, women's walking football. I love all of that because I think, you know, it's never too late. 
how, how can you ever say to someone, or you've missed your opportunity to play the game you love? It's very difficult. I know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm smiling because I think to myself, that's great, obviously. I, I, it's kind of bringing me back to when I first started to play, but for you, you know, to kind of miss what you'd say your your twenties, and you go to play in your thirties, and you see what you, you you describe a role model who's you know ten years older than you plus, and they're still playing. And you make a very important point about it's not just about young girls; it's about women having access to a sport. You know, and, and it, the question that I have from that is, you know, did you have a conversation? in your head, should I say, or, or the threads of a conversation that you were unable to share with anyone because you weren't sure that you could share it with anyone? Did you hold on to it? or do, Are you finding now that there are more women like you that are saying, yeah, I've always loved football, but they never said anything? Um, I think that's an interesting question because I think, from, I'm sure there are, to answer that, I'm sure there are women who, who are a bit like, oh yeah, is, is it acceptable now? Can we all say that we love yeah. football? But um, so I'm sure there are women like that. Me personally, um, I've just always loved it. And, and the power of that love kind of just overwhelmed anything else. So even if um, people were a bit like, you like football. I, so in primary school, for example, I remember at playtimes, my female friends being very annoyed with me that I wouldn't spend time with them at playtime and I kept going off and playing football um and so I've always kind of been conscious of this slightly odd one out vibe um but I think that's why I'm so passionate now about creating environments where you are not the odd one out if you feel like that and actually it's just normal so I'm really keen to normalize women as coaches because People say to me all the time, oh, yeah, so she's a female coach. And I'm like, well, I'm a coach. I never say to any men, right, so you're a male coach. Like, let's, let, like language is important. And let's just start normalising women as coaches because there are brilliant female coaches across all sports. Um, and I think it's really important that we kind of just lose some of these labels because they're not necessary. Mm. You know, you, you, you're right. And I think what, what you say in terms of language is important. What language does and the, the, the use of the word female, it separates you from the rest of the pack straight away. Um, no one says uh, there's a female teacher. Uh, male or female, there's a teacher. You know, who's your teacher? Who's the head teacher? Um, it's just, you know, the person in the room. Coach, the, the classroom boundaries are different but you're still working with young people or young adults and you're doing the same thing. So you're absolutely right in terms of, you know, you're a female coach, you're a coach, you're a coach. And, um, you know, it is important. It is important to actually kind of ram home that idea about, yeah, I'm just a coach, you know, that's it. So treat me, treat me on, on, on that level. Um, before I start asking you about your coach, I want to find out about you as a player. What kind of player were you? So um, I was talking about this the other day, actually, and I said I was probably quite annoying to play against. I think I was a bit of a disruptor. So um, mm. in a good way, you know, breaking down the, the momentum of the opposition. But I think so my actual. So the funny thing, when I started playing organised football, then the coach says to me, who was a woman, uh, says to me, what's your position? And I'm thinking, no. I don't know. I've never played in <laughs> So I, I said, I don't know. I said, I like, I like to score goals. Who doesn't like to score goals? Um, um, and I said, I'm, I'm not particularly quick, um, but, you know, I can turn and shoot. And she was like, mm, you sound like a number 10. So I'm like, OK. Because um, you've got to remember at this point, I'd done no coaching. I hadn't done any coaching. Um, and so... Um, but I, I did play a couple of games as number 10 and loved it. But my coach was actually a number 10. And she initially was going to be just a coach and then decided she wanted to be player coach. So then she took up that position and I was moved out to the left wing, which for me was not ideal because in hockey, so the only relevant, like the only sort of experience I could relate to it was hockey. And in hockey, I play centre mid. Um, so I always, 
I like to see the pitch, you know, I like to see the pitch. I like to be able to play left and right. I like to play centrally, but I'm not a strong defender at all. So I like to play attacking. And so the, the, the left wing wasn't the end of the world because I could still move forward, but I didn't feel like I had the speed. You got to remember, so I'm like 30, 31, and I'm playing against 18 year olds on a Sunday. <laughs> so, um, so I did, I basically used to, um, I did what I could. And I remember there were games where I'd, I'd always have more motive. I was one of those players, you know, that's always got more motivation to sprint forward than to track back. <laughs> basically and so I um, I'd have all my energy if I thought the, the goal was inside but if it was about a recovery run woof, I, I'd struggle um, and so I basically was very I'd say I was very careful with what I had in the tank and um, I'd make sure you know I still and also on the left it, it did help me develop my left foot um, but I would, my classic was to try and move forward, even if it was without the ball, just make sure I was keeping with the attack. And if the ball came to me, I would just cut in right foot. Bang. And I did score a few goals. So, and every time I scored, I thought to myself, see, you should just be playing me number 10. I'd score so many goals. <laughs> right. You know, I want to ask you about tracking back because you've already <laughs> identified that you were it was was that the time that your coach actually used your full name or did she still say oh Ali? my gosh no it was still always ali i think because the thing is if people are introduced to me as ali they just call me ali like a lot of people don't actually know my full name's allison um but um i remember vividly one match where um i'd spr i'd sprinted forward with the ball and then the attack had broken down um, and then I had tracked back, I'd made my recovery run, and then the ball had gone, someone had sent basically a clearance, a pass, but a clearance, but it, it had gone down the left wing, and it was in space. And I remember, get there, Annie, get there. And I'm thinking, I, I've just done this. I can't do this again. Um, so, yeah, I do remember thinking, I can't. I'm not, I'm not the player you think I am and I don't have what you think I've got. And I think, you know, we're laughing about it now and it is funny and I do have very, very fond memories of, of playing. Um, but it actually really helped me without, I didn't know it at the time, but it, those experiences have really helped me as a coach in terms of I very much work from a strengths-based approach in what can this player do? rather than them making them feel like they need to be doing this and they need to be doing that and they're failing at it, let's start with what they can do and kind of exploit that because that's going to build their confidence. And then we can start to look at, okay, so now you're up here, let's start to, to work on some of the things that um, need a bit of development. Yeah, that's good. You know what, you, obviously you kind of beat me to the punch in terms of what you would use from your playing days with regards to a coach. Let's talk to, you know, let's get from you about your, your coaching. You're currently coaching South London Laces, correct? So, um, I'm changed? in a, it has changed. Don't worry, you've done your, you've done your research this well, Rodney. All of Rodney's listeners, listeners he, he has done a good job. Um, it's terrible. What it is, well, it is not, it's not your error at all. What it is, is that I'm basically in trans transition. There's been a summer transfer, um, but Exclusive, I'm, everyone. Yeah, well, though, unfortunately, it's still embargoed. It's still embargoed, so I'm not allowed to, re to reveal yet. <laughs> Retract that exclusion. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I will, um, maybe, maybe we, can, we can, I can come back on at some point. Most definitely, most definitely. But, but yeah, so basically, but when we went into lockdown, um, I had been coaching South London Laces, which is a women's um, grassroots team in South London, as the title suggests. Um, and, and the beauty of that is that they actually play their league. They play in the exact same league that I used to play in. And they, their home ground is Clapham Common, which was my home ground. So I think when I did that role, it, I felt like I'd come sort of full circle almost, but in, in a really lovely way. 
Um, so I really, it, it was a short season because I only started last season. And then obviously, as we know, this season yeah. was cut very short because of the pandemic. But it was, it was very sweet, very sweet season. And how, how, um, how did you find being a coach there? What did you, what was it like doing the training sessions, for example? Um, so at South London Aces? Or yeah, just, just yeah, yeah, South London Aces. So, um, so South London Laces is part of a wider Laces initiative. Um, the first club was Hackney Laces. Um, then there's Limehouse Laces and now there's South London Laces as well. And South London Laces focuses specifically on sort of adult, like football for adult women. Um, but it is any ability is welcome. On a Thursday night, which is their training night, it's literally anyone can turn up um, and then they have a Sunday league team, which if people are available and feel that they want to play in the league, then they can make themselves available for those games. So training was a really good, interesting challenge for me at South London Aces because I'd gone from coaching at Spurs Girls, where mm. I had a set team and I knew who was going to be there every week and what we were going to work on. And I had a program of work in my mind to a very much more kind of a mixture of it being a lot more recreational with these mm. women, but also still having a program of work in my mind because I'm still trying to help develop a league team through their season. So it was a really, really good challenge. Um, and I think what it kind of um, highlighted as well is, is the sort of lack of space available especially in London, um, in terms of grassroots facilities. But we were working on a third of a pitch, a sand-based pitch, which anyone who's ever played any sport on sand-based pitches will know is the worst type of surface to play on. Um, but we had, you know, a third of an 11-a-side pitch um, for, for an hour, an hour and a half on a Thursday night. And I could have anywhere between like regularly 20 to 35 women turning up on a third of a pitch <laughs> so in terms of working through a program in terms of a league team it was very challenging yeah so you'd have to share that that pitch so there were other teams doing similar sessions on on the other two thirds yeah so there was a, a, so we had a goal end which was a blessing because we had an, an one 11 side side size goal, um, which obviously we took great advantage of with my goalkeeper and working with her. Um, and then there was, um, it used to vary. Sometimes in the centre third, it would be a women's team. Sometimes it was a mixed team. Sometimes it was a men's team. And then up the far end, it was always a men's team. But yeah, we had to, we were sharing that space and that and you will see that it, like I say especially in in cities like London but I think that is reflected across the country in terms of that provision for grassroots football still needs a lot of investment and work in terms of pitch availability mm -hmm. yeah but you know what it reminds me again like I say what it was like for well the young men that it was when I was growing up. So it's, 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 uh, uh, we had a slightly more space, I believe, but I don't believe we have to share a third of a pitch, but you know, I'd have to think really hard about that. You know, obviously you've been at South London Laces for not very long. You were at Spurs. You've been at a number of places because obviously I have done my mm -hmm. research. Um, you've got connections <laughs> with Tottenham Hotspurs Academy. You've got connection with um, Millwall Lionesses RTC. Um, and is it Dalmain Athletic as well? So you've been around in terms, you've done a lot of coaching uh, with, yeah. with young adults, teenagers. Um, which one of these clubs has given you the best moments in terms of your coaching experience and the most difficult moments of your coaching experience? Oh, that, that, that could be controversial, Rodney. I better check my contract. Oh my God. <laughs> No, we, really. we walked through this at the beginning, Ali. We walked through it. <laughs> um, you, can no, be, so, you can be diplomatic. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give a politician's answer. No, honestly, okay. um, 
so uh, Dalmain Athletic I always say like that's my home in terms of my my football coaching career because it's mm-hmm. where I started um I've got really fond memories of being there um just from literally being I think anyone in football wherever you start it's like when you if you were to talk to an elite professional player now they would they will have still have fond memories of their first grassroots club, wouldn't they? Because it's yeah. it's the beginning, it's the beginning of of the career, mm-hmm. um, and so Dalmain will always be, you know, have a special place in my heart because it it allowed me to start that journey. Basically, it gave me the opportunity to start coaching, and also because at that time, um, so it's a local club to me. It's a club in Lewisham in South East London, where I'm from. And at that time, it was the only club in Lewisham with um, football provision, grassroots football provision for, you know, girls aged between five and 11. And, um, and so it's brilliant now that that's grown. Um, and um, yeah, that, that, that was just brilliant from beginning to end, really. Now, do you know what? Um, I, 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 I know that you say you began there. This is what I'm, I, I want to get. How did you get into coaching? Who pulled you in? So, um, I pulled me in, I guess. I, um, I was, when I was training with Clapham Kicks, which is the team I used to play for, great name. Um, and um, we, the amateur FA were offering out free level one places to women, basically. Um, and so my coach said to the, the squad, I've got two places. Is anyone interested in going on their level one? And I just thought, yeah, give it a go, see what it's like. Um, now this was, I think this was probably 2013. So this was the old school level one. Um, it very much felt like, and it was, it's very important, and I'm not saying safeguarding isn't important, but it very much felt like it was a safeguarding course rather than a football-specific course. Um, and it was, you know, it was about creating a safe environment, laying the foundations. And um, so I, I enjoyed it, but it kind of made me think, oh, okay, well, hang on then, so what's level two about? So then I decided to sign up for level two. And at that time, with level two, you you needed then an actual team to coach. Whereas with your level one, you don't actually have to be coaching. Um, So that's why I got involved with Dalmain. So I I then got back in touch with the AFA and said, do you know any teams in Lewisham, in and around Lewisham that I could coach while I do my level two? You know, I'm happy to volunteer, whatever. So that's how I got, and they directed me to Dalmain Athletic. And, I, and yeah, so I volunteered with them. It was just one hour a week um, in a primary school playground, which is where I used to play all of my football at that age. And, um, and it was great. And I loved it. That's good. I mean, I did, I'm, it's really, for me, it's really important to kind of find out how you transition from being a player to a coach. And obviously the availability of, of, a, of a level one course almost kind of like the breadcrumbs on the trail they pull you in so your intrigue is like okay this is level one what's level two and then obviously as you say you pulled yourself you you then invest in the time to contact the fa and say is there a club i want to do level two can you point me in the right direction which is really good um not everyone will do that though yeah so i think take your path yeah i think also i was conscious that I was now, what, 33 or something. (laughs) And I was conscious that um, I maybe wouldn't play for, I maybe wouldn't play every Sunday for a lot longer. And so I think in, in my mind as well, it was how do I, you know, I have always loved this game and now I've played it for like three seasons. How do I ensure there's still a space for me in this game because that has been always been something that's really important to me because when I was younger, I felt that I was often told there wasn't a space for me in this game because I was female. And so 
you know, fast forward <laughs> when I was, you know, then I'm in my thirties and I've got more confidence than when I was eight or nine. And I'm thinking, well, no, actually this game, you know, I'm going to make space for me in this game. Then if, if I'm not going to be told there's no space for me anymore. So I think that's how the coaching came about as well. It was wanting to ensure when I stop playing, how do I stay involved in the game? Yeah, and, and you have definitely, definitely done that. So from Dalmain, how many, how, how long do you stay at Dalmain as a coach? How long was I at Dalmain? Um, because obviously then that was done via the school, the school year. Um, mm. And so it would have been at least two full school years, I think. It was um, because it was the 16-17 season that I started at Millwall. And I think I started at Dalmain sort of April. So coming up to the, to the, towards the summer holidays, really, but April 2014. So I was there for a couple of years. Um, and then, yeah, and then got an opportunity to coach in, a, in an academy, uh, which was a baptism of fire because I'd gone from coaching in a playground once a week, volunteer, unpaid, you know, literally just one hour a week no league no they didn't play matches those girls it was literally just an after-school club mm. to then an academy with a technical director and a syllabus of work and girls that were so talented and you know i'd gone from coaching some girls that had never kicked football before to some girls who you know potentially could be on an england pathway in the future so completely you know, complete contrast. Um, and I think one of the sort of key lessons I learned in that time was about remaining authentic as a coach. So even though the cohort had changed quite significantly in a lot of ways, I didn't need to change in terms of who I am. Like I still needed to be my authentic self because kids especially see through any kind of... Um, you know, if you want to put on a front, kids see it straight away. If you want to try and pretend you're someone you're not, or you know something you don't, or you're able to do something you can't, kids will call it out immediately. Um, and so I've all, people who know me know that I'm very authentic anyway, but it, I think it helped me kind of cement that idea in my mind that actually, yes, you can just still be Coach Ali. You don't have to pretend to be someone else just because you've got a club jacket now with a you know all of this stuff um so yeah it was interesting interesting times so so generally generally you, your motto is to be true to yourself yeah I, th I think authenticity is key because um you know that whole bit of a cliche but you know that whole kind of um if, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for everything. And I think, you know, we all, I said to my friend the other day, you know, when you ask someone something and they say, oh, I don't mind. I feel like I don't mind is the most casual lie people tell all the time. <laughs> because you do mind, you stand for something, you have a preference, you have a belief and, um, and it's important. And yes, you, you, you know, you need to ensure that it's not gonna harm yourself or anyone else, but otherwise it's important to kind of stay true to who you are. Yeah, definitely. Um, while you're in the academy, so you make that transition, who's, who, who is mentoring you during this time? So um, I, I've always tried to have like a kind of FA mentor, whether that's a kind of um, someone that has been purposely kind of attached to me as a mentor or actually someone I've just met at an event or things like that, that I feel could help guide me and could just, I think sometimes a lot of the time the answers are already within you. You just need a sounding board. You just need someone to kind of bounce those ideas off of. So I've always had kind of informal mentors as well as formal mentors within Millwall specifically, um, I guess the guy that I was then partnered with to coach. So I was coaching the under 12s as an assistant coach. And I guess the head coach in some respects became like a mentor um, because he had a very different approach to me. And I think um, there were lots of, there was actually a strength to that coaching partnership 
in that we kind of complemented each other because the girls were then given kind of all four corners shall we say <laughs> because they were given the, the best of both worlds um but but yeah i think i think constantly you learn from people around you and what ha what i've found out is that what happens is is that the more you experience the more discerning you can become about what you then take on and think is a good way to practice and what you think actually that's not quite how i'm going to go about these things but you have still learned from those people so it's fun it's finding your own path with the support that you have yeah definitely brilliant um i think especially sorry just on that i think a really important point is around especially in this age of twitter coaching where everyone's got an opinion everyone's got a session plan everyone like I see all these tweets all the time saying, oh, I've got all this, like DM me if you want the details or send me your email if you want my session plan. And I'm thinking, why would I want your session plan for your group of whoever you're coaching, which could be completely different to my group and my environment. And, and so I think, you know, what I sort of implore all coaches to do is kind of have your own voice, like have your own mind. And yes, if there are elements of other people's practice that you think, actually, I really like that, I like that approach, by all means, adopt it and then adapt it, but don't just copy it because that's, that's not coaching. Yeah, I, I'm wondering, have you seen my questions? I think... I think <laughs> <laughs> right, the question I have for you, because it's literally following on from what you said, because you kind of added to it, you know, what's, what is your footballing philosophy? You kind of almost mentioned it, but do you have a footballing philosophy that kind of is you mirror in your life? Is there, is there a, um, do you separate what you do in terms of your life and football? Or is there something about you, like an, an integral part of you that you say, this is who I am all the time and I bring this to the football world? 100%. So um, my coaching philosophy that I sort of developed into these three key words which are engage, educate, empower. That has always been within me. So like I said, it's like, I, so when I was studying for my B license, um, we were asked to think about why we coach, which I would put to all coaches, have a think about why you coach. Um, and in across nine months of doing that course, this question keeps going around my head and these there's like kind of three key elements i guess that keep popping up which is around you know i'm i basically i like people i like engaging with people i like getting like connecting with people getting to know people understanding what makes them tick um and you know that requires empathy and mm. i think empathy is probably one of the key attributes to, to teaching and coaching i mean in life in general but especially if you're trying to teach someone something um and so that was the engage part of it how can how can i connect to these people because if i'm trying to teach them something so the way i might go about teaching you rodney something well, could be okay. very different yeah it could be very different to how i might teach one of your friends um and I'm only gonna know that by getting to know both of you. And I, I just genuinely think it's worth, like it's time consuming, but I think the results, you know, it, eventually it pays off because you can get through to that person um, more effectively. Mm. So then it's about, then that's where the educate comes in. How do I educate you? Um, and then for me, a key part of it is around wanting to empower, not just, um the people i'm coaching but myself as well and in fact all of those elements there's nothing completely selfless about my coaching there are elements that, that are selfish as well because i enjoy engaging with people i get something out of that too um every time i try and teach someone something i learn i learn it better myself and um and i learn from the players as well all the time every time i coach i learn and then I'm empowered by that. I'm empowered by empowering them. And I think the empowerment part, you know, I want to empower everyone, but 
I specifically enjoy empowering women and girls in the game. And that is very reflective of, yes, I'd say that is reflective of who, who I am as a person. It's not, and this is what I mean about being authentic because then I don't just like put on a coach. I mean, I don't wear a hat coaching anyway, but you know, I don't put on a, <laughs> a coaching hat and then suddenly it's engage, educate, empower. I try and live that in my life. Do you know, do you know what, um, what you've described in terms of the world, in, in the world of education, you describe what they call differentiation is knowing the individual and the needs that they have. Um, every teacher is always learning as a coach, you're always learning because if the only way you do learn is by actually seeing what you put in place work. And if it's working, you're going to have to then to, to not only reflect on what you've done to adapt it so that the person you're coaching continually makes the improvements that you want them to make. So you're going to learn. And um, you know, that is really refreshing to hear. Knowing where you are right now in your world of coaching, you know, um, if you could go back to any point in your time and it, with, with your love of the game, at what point would you go back as a coach and would you kind of interject yourself into that timeline and what would you do? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So do you mean as in... At any point in, in my coaching career, would I go back or at no, any point, even no, when I was I mean, playing? No, I mean, generally right now, as you as a coach, you as a coach, if you could travel back through your own timeline to any point within your timeline, to when you were a player in your 30s, whether you're in your 20s, when you were at school in your teenage years and or your, or your primary years, if you were able to go in at any point of that timeline and interject yourself into your life, your younger version self and shed some hope and light and say, it's not going to be like this. What point would you enter and what would you do? Oh gosh, I think I I'd probably, yeah, because it's like, at what point do you, do you try and change um, what then happened? I think, um, I think I would probably go back to me as that young, as that kind of seven-year-old, that seven-year-old girl who had this love, this genuine love for a game, but felt like she just had to accept it when someone said, oh, no, obviously you can't play for the school team. Why, why would you be allowed to play for the school team? Um, and I think it's because when I cut, I don't always do this consciously, but when I'm asked to reflect on it, like you have asked me just now, I think that's why I am so passionate about coaching now, because I'm, when I'm coaching, even when I'm coaching adult women, there's a part of me that's coaching my seven-year-old self and saying, you can do this. You can absolutely do this. You are good enough. You are strong enough. You are brave enough. You know, you are talented enough. You can learn. You know, you, you can achieve whatever you want to achieve. Um, and, and that sort of sense of empowering someone else to be the best that they can be and not get concerned that it might not look like the person next to them. Because I think we very much live in a comparison culture, especially with social media. Everyone's posting their best life all the time when you know that actually that's probably a very filtered one of 50 photographs that they have taken of themselves. Um, and I think, yeah, there's, a, there's an enormous pressure, particularly on, on girls and teenage girls to sort of, but also I see coaches do it now and they, they look at other people's journeys and careers and the clubs they've coached at or haven't coached at and all of this and it's, it's yours, you know, genuinely live your best self live your best life but it's not going to look like anyone else's why would it why would you want it to mm, indeed you know what i know that question i literally just thought of that question uh, before That's i asked it question. i'm sorry I, I i mean it, it, i had to phrase it in a very particular way because i i wanted to go back to where you began and obviously you played you know primary school and I just want to know what you'd say to yourself at that younger age, whether it is a primary or teenage, how would you kind of come in and what would you do? And it, it's very difficult. And, I, you know, I think what you say when you're coaching, I think everyone, it doesn't matter what they're doing, whether they're in education, coaching, you know, we're always talking to our younger self because there's, a, there's an element of something that we hold on to. 
and say, I didn't have that, I need to change it for someone else. And um, it's, it's very, very clear that your journey has been marked by what you didn't have, but you made the most of your love for the game. And you were at a point where you are giving back to the game that you love, but also you're giving back to a younger you that you haven't met yet. Yeah, you know. absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, I did, I was almost gonna call you a full name then, but I thought I best not, because you, you might be upset. Um, <laughs> I know that you've got something really special. I wanna find out from you when we finish recording. But before we go, um, generally, in, in two or three years time, if I were to ask you, where would you see yourself in the coaching world and the world of football, where would you imagine that you would be? So, um, for a while, so I nearly gave, it's probably worth sharing, I nearly stopped coaching um, a couple of years ago. Um, I had a really bad experience and it really knocked me, knocked me in all senses, but especially my confidence and my belief in myself. Um, and I, I just, I nearly gave up completely. And I also felt like, so it, it wasn't, it wasn't anything that happened at a club. It was something that happened outside of a club, but because it coincided with being in, shall we say, a more professional environment, I sort of convinced myself that elite football wasn't really for me um, and that I wouldn't thrive in those types of environments. But what I've since learned is that not all environments are the same <laughs> so you can't just prejudge and, and assume that just because one elite environment is like that then another elite environment will be like that and so I think in a few years time I'd like to say that I will be coaching confidently and competently in professional football environment. Okay well you know that's a, that's a bold statement and I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your bad experience and I I hope it wasn't too bad, but you're, you're staying the course. And so you're going to go back into the ring one more time. Um, would you come back on and share your news next time? Yes, absolutely. More than happy to. Good. Right. Um, I'm going to say thank you, Ali. See, I didn't use your full name. <laughs> thank you. It's all right. Please don't go anywhere. I'm going to say goodbye to you guys. Thanks for listening. This was an interview with Ali Speechley as part of the On and Off the Pitch podcast. I'm Rodney Cyrus. Until next time, bye for now.